0: Welcome to Coloring the Melody. I'm Nora and I'm Darlene and we are two female music teachers of color discussing the realities of life and aiming to break the norm in education. Our mission with this podcast is to contribute a different voice in topics such as music, education, faith and multiculturalism. So sit back and enjoy! everyone, welcome to season 2, episode 2. Today we'll be speaking to Alice Tsui. So who is Alice? Alice is an Asian American, Chinese American pianist, music educator, scholar, activist, and lifelong Brooklyn New Yorker. She graduated from New York University with a Bachelor of Music in Piano Performance and a Master of Arts in Music Education, and is currently a doctoral candidate ABD in Music Education at Boston University. Alice is the founding music teacher at PS532, New Bridges Elementary, an arts-integrated public elementary school in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and is on the piano faculty at the Manhattan School of Music Summer Program. Alice is a contributor and moderator for Decolonizing the Music Room. As a product of the NYC public school system, Alice is passionate about decolonizing anti-racist, abolitionist public music education and empowering the individual and collective voices of youth through music as expression. Also, I'd like to apologize in advance for the low-quality recording, but I hope that does not diminish the actual substance of our conversation so just as a heads up as you're listening Alrighty, and without any further ado let's listen from alice hi everybody this is Darlie over here and welcome back to coloring the melody unfortunately nora is not here to join us for this episode but i am not the only one here we have our guest alice hello alice thank you for joining us on coloring the melody Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Yes, super, super excited. and We have a really awesome episode for you. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged for um, the talk that we have today for y'all. But we are going to get to know Alice a little bit more with a this or that game. So here you go, Alice. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready and I want <laughs> to win because I'm win- <laughs> I'm not sure if there's like a winner for this. It's more of a like, let's just get to know Alice a little bit more. That's cool. Um, and then I'll even here, then. put my, <laughs> yep, exactly. We're all winners. Okay. Um, coffee or tea? Tea. Okay. I'm more of a coffee person. Uh-oh. <laughs> all right. Um, chicken or beef?
1: Beef. How about you? Beef. It
0: depends on the food.
1: That's very it true. Really
0: depends. Okay. Um, yeah. Sometimes beef is just oh, it's just so much better in some and some. Like I think I'll just stick with chicken. So it depends. Um, yeah. Digital planning or paper planning. Digital planning. <laughs> digital planning. Save okay. the trees. True, and it's easy to access on the cloud, the drive whatever
1: (laughs) um okay
0: the next one let's see snowy vacation or warm sunny vacation
1: (laughs) snowy vacation I'm in New York and snowing Um, right now and I love mm -hmm. it I love snow I still I
0: feel like I need to get to learn to love snow it's I like my um Ten month summer, I guess, in California. <laughs> yes, like right now, I think it's yeah. like, like seventy degrees, and it's January. Oh my god It's not January. It's February. Yep. It's very right now. I'm wearing a hoodie because it's quote unquote cold in quotes. <laughs> and by cold, it's like sixty degrees. But I know eventually it's gonna be in the, like
1: the seventies. Um, wow, yep, wow! Wow! That, that is me. <laughs> and, and I know some yeah, other like states thirty. With a, oh my! Yeah, goodness. I think it's like dirty and snowing and that's like pretty warm right now (laughs) like that's (laughs) (laughs) balmy
0: when I went to New York a few years ago it was 40 and I thought I was withering away three so so a three-day weekend or Again,
1: and this is gonna sound so like Western music practice makes a perfect situation, but yeah, just even thinking of like how often I would get to make music with kids, like the more frequently it happens versus taking a whole week long break is what I would prefer.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, that, that's so true now that I
0: think about it. You know, the consistency of seeing kids yeah Yeah. that makes sense Hmm. and I also feel like I think I would like a mix of it I'm not I don't know if I'm allowed to do that with my own this question (laughs) but (laughs) I think there are some months where you're just oh I think I just need a longer break like just a whole week Mm -hmm. to rest catch up um but yeah I can see how the consistency of having at least like you know a three three day weekend would be nice okay well, anyways, let's get to our questions for today. So we know a little bit about Alice just based on these little little tidbits. So let's just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, who are you? What's your story? How did you become a music teacher? Your musical background? Things like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Alice Toy. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I live on the upseated land of Muncie, Nala, Nate and Canarsie. People also known as Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my parents, yeah, whoa, you're seeing me fist pump through the podcast screen. Um, <laughs> my parents immigrated to America in the 80s uh, from China. So I'm the first child of generation born here in the U.S. And my dad's an appreciative of music. My mom sings in choirs and will excitedly break into Chinese opera <laughs> at home growing up. Um, and my first musical memory uh, that I hadn't thought about in a long time was at age four, I distinctly remember my mom bringing me to a piano store and letting me pick out my own piano. And it was a really big expense at the time of my family. And when the piano got delivered, she kneeled down and had me promise to commit to my instrument. And I really felt empowered in that moment to, to play. And we and I think that's important to for me to share because it's different than being forced to play. And I felt like I I, I knew that this was... A big deal for me and my family. Um, and we actually had a tough time finding a teacher because apparently a few teachers and my parents sought out in Chinatown that my hands were too small. So to play piano, which apparently isn't like a thing that is unheard of. I've heard common stories to this, which is uh, hard to believe in a way. Um, but ultimately, I was able to start piano lessons with a piano teacher who studied at the Shanghai Conservatory through a family friend, and we traveled two hours one way each weekend to have a one hour lesson. So I just knew very young that it was a big sacrifice. My mom had to work multiple jobs to pay for lessons. And I was lucky to have a few amazing piano teachers in my life and also have joyful experiences in my public music education. So middle school, I had uh, my strings teacher, Miss Jacobs, our orchestra teacher, who I'm really grateful for to this day for inspiring my love for creating music in a group setting, which is so different from playing piano. And even though playing piano is so joyful for my soul personally, and it's a very, can be a very solitude kind of uh, joy that I I still love to this day. I really love the feeling of playing in an orchestra or more just, just more broadly in a group and the feeling of feeling like you're creating one unified sound altogether is so indescribable. And I just love that so much. Um, so that's a little bit about me and just what I aim to, to create with my students, too, is a sense of unity through sound. Um, in addition to that, I really enjoy listening to lots of music and especially hip hop and rap. Um, I think that's something that's a really key part of myself and listening to it is a part of my identity growing up in New York City as an Asian American. And I also enjoy writing and freestyling raps, too. So. Oh, I love it. Um, do you remember what kind of piano you got? when you were you said four right yeah I had a Samick yeah I had a Samick it was black and shiny (laughs) which I think really was the main motivator more than anything I mean it it was expensive at the time and I just I like got that right away that this was a big deal that I was committing to this so yeah
0: yeah I like I love that you talked about how your experience starting off the piano is very different from the typical, like, oh, we are forced to teach or forced to learn the piano. Like, I love that. Okay, like you promise to stay committed to this. Like, this is an investment. What got you into rap and hip hop? Was there a very, like, pivotal moment? Was it very gradual?
1: I don't know that it was a pivotal moment, but on... TV before and after school, I just remember hearing hip hop like on the radio or just in commercials and things. And it was just so opposite of everything I did musically, classically, but just around me. So, so much more of an environmental experience. And as a kid, it felt very important to separate the two. But now, uh, as an adult and as a music teacher, I just feel like those are parts of my identity and we should never sever those things and instead really try to embrace that uh, unity as a whole. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: And I think especially when, um, like, if when I mean, for me personally, when I was growing up learning, you know, my piano, and then learning about music at school, and then I always thought, oh, the music I liked at home was just kind of separate. Like, oh, that's just, I never saw it mm-hmm. in my piano lessons or in choir. So I'm just going to enjoy it on my own time. Um, and I feel like that's important for these, these kids to know that um, the music you experience and that you listen to can be learned and can be welcomed in our classrooms. But speaking of classrooms, I'm just curious, what is your current teaching situation like? Because mine is completely distance learning. Um, We're still in the beginning of 2021, and I've been teaching through a screen since March 2020,
1: so I'm curious about yours. Yeah, so I'm the founding music teacher and arts creator at PS532 New Bridges Elementary in Brooklyn, New York, so I started the program from ground up, literally walked into a classroom uh, eight years ago, and there was nothing. So, like many educators, I was trying to figure out what to do, and I, as an, as predominantly an instrumentalist, wanted my kids to have that as well. So I did things like (laughs) picked up keyboards all over New York City based on Craigslist ads um, to create a keyboard lab, fundraise a ton for orchestral instruments, wrote a lot of grants over the years. Um, But in addition to that, our school, in our school, all the kids are able to engage in, in arts for at least 50 minutes every day. And that includes music, art, dance, and PE, and everyone starts the morning at something called Bright Start, which is a musical affirmational community meeting. And in those 10 minutes, students and teachers set up each other for a great day, including songs, chants, a song of the day, promises, affirmations. And so that's really a big part of our learning. Um, Pre-COVID, the fourth and fifth grade also had the opportunity to choose arts majors and minors. So they would specialize And it was very like, just like how in college, you can pick majors, the kids could pick which arts majors they wanted and have at least 150 minutes of weekly instruction in that major, which was really exciting. Uh, Yeah, so that was all of that pre-COVID. And honestly, a lot of that, we're still able to maintain now. So as I don't know if listeners know, but New York City Public Schools, elementary schools are open for in-person learning. So I teach in-person and online. So I create lessons for both remote learners and in-person learners. I laugh a little bit because um, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work to be really honest. Um, but in person I've been really lucky because I have, I uh, instead of teaching the classroom now i teaching the auditorium and it's a big enough space where kids actually can social distance very safely with PPE and sing. And I know that's so rare to have. So I really, really treasure that a lot. And we have start streaming live now on YouTube and the students are able to rotate, in, rotate weekly in music classes and other arts classes. And, and a day in my class, I think uh, can vary from kids singing, playing instruments, some digital music production, and then engaging in um, conversation about racial issues and, and Black Lives Matter. So a mix of all of the above. Oh my gosh, I love it. And if y'all aren't
0: following Alice on Instagram, Y'all should, and I am also so inspired by seeing what your students create. Oh my goodness, it just warms my heart, and I think, wow, Alice, Alice is doing and uh, just doing just amazing work in making sure that these students feel seen, that their voices are heard, and. Um, and not just talking about, I, I don't want to say it like this, but surface level music education. They're not just saying, hey, everybody, make sure you know the difference between forte and piano, which is loud and soft for our non-musical <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not just that, which I feel like some teachers think, oh, that's that's my job. That's what I have to do. But it's it's so much more than that. So just curious, did, I mean, you already talked a little bit about your musical background, but did you ever see yourself represented in music education, and I guess both in classrooms and in piano? So in
1: classrooms, no, not at all. And I guess that's that. And then private piano, my first teacher is Chinese and specifically Shanghainese So I actually started taking lessons in piano in my first language, which is Shanghainese And I, I actually don't remember all the music terminology anymore, which is unfortunate. Um, And my college piano teacher Miyoko Lotto is a Japanese-American pianist and and my my first teacher is Shanghainese and I think it's important for me to name that difference um, that even though we all fall fall under the monolith of Asian-American there's a difference between (laughs) Chinese-American versus Japanese-American so there, those, those are the subtle things that I would pick up on in lessons. Like there's a difference between first speaking in your, in your first tongue versus now like you're older and or I'm older and, and speaking in English and learning music. Um, yeah, but I had in public music education learned no music related to my cultural identity. The closest may be Sakura, which is not that close. And yeah, only white Western classical music really. Yeah, same. Like people will tell me,
0: "Oh, Darlene, like you had an Asian piano teacher." I'm like, "Um, but my piano teacher in college was Japanese, and I'm Filipino. <laughs> Those are two very different cultures. Uh, very big differences. Yes, we are under the the Asian continent umbrella, but yeah, there were still um some nuances that I didn't quite understand. Um, and then there were some a little bit like little culture clashes too with that. So I think it's important for people to know that, hey just because we're from the same continent, doesn't mean that we all completely <laughs> are like, you know, experience the same thing. So I love that you talked about um, people, but, um, and you mentioned this about in, in piano and in um, our materials. So now we're going to transition into talking about in the month of February, where the, we have many days in February, we got groundhog day, which I mean, I still don't really do, do anything for groundhog day. Um, Cause that's also <laughs> my brother's birthday. So for me, my brother's birthday takes precedence. Gotcha. So I'm like, mm, grounded. no, my brother. Yeah. Um, so we have Ground Day, Valentine's Day, President's Day. But for our episode, I want to primarily focus on Lunar New Year and um, Black History Month. But I also kind of want to backtrack because I experienced something um, last week where I started off with my fifth and sixth graders, just asking them what they already knew about the month of February. I just wanted to tap in on their prior knowledge. So I said, hey, what's special about the month? I said month as the keyword. And they were like President's Day, Lincoln Day, Valentine's Day, and I go month, month. And I said, well, it's Black History Month. Have any of you ever heard of it? And so I taught four fifth and sixth grade classes um, that day only one kid in each of those classes had ever heard of it. And I think for me, if they were in second and third grade, i go, go, oh, okay, like, and yeah, maybe they haven't heard of the past few years. But I'm thinking, okay, so you're fifth and sixth grade. So you went through all of these years in schooling without acknowledging the month of February. So they, they mentioned TET, which is um, Vietnamese New Year, which is um, very huge um, in one of my schools. But I've always found that very interesting, too, that even their answers of TET weren't one of the first answers. They immediately were thinking like Valentine's Day, President's Day, things like that. So hmm. um, so that, yeah, that's kind of where this is coming from. I guess before we dive into what are some examples that you do to uplift those, like what are your, like after hearing my story, like what are your thoughts on that?
1: I'm shocked that I'm not. And I feel like that's a lived reality for people of color in general because you default to the calendar, and the celebrations that the the whole society will recognize and publicly recognize. Um, it makes me sad, honestly, because I, uh, so I teach predominantly Black, Brown, Latinx children, and I, I, we are really intentional about making sure that that, even if there is a lack of a full grasp of all the history that goes on within February that everyone knows that it exists, first of all. Um, so it's never, I hope that it's never a question when I ask if I pitch that student uh, question to students next year, like what is February that it isn't like President's Day? Um, or, or yeah, especially President's Day, I guess, because that's, that's problematic in so many ways. As well so yeah there's definitely a disappointment that I feel in, in hearing your story yet knowing that that's I'm sure that your experience is not singular. When I asked the students who's who
0: said that oh I think it's Black History Month I asked oh wait like, how do you know I maybe I I assumed maybe they heard it from school and I think well they couldn't have heard it from school because then if one out of these 36 said yeah so it can't <laughs> be that and they said oh I saw it on tv so I'm thinking, okay, so I guess the TV's doing a better job in advertising this. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> oh, no. So um, so yeah. Um, and I guess what are, and you're kind of touching on it, but I guess like what are some specific tangible ways that you you weave Lunar New Year and Black History Month in February, not just in this month, but throughout the school year.
1: Yeah, so I'll start with Lunar New Year. For me, I think I just talk about the fact that I'm Asian-American a lot with my students. I am the only Asian-American, Asian teacher in school at the moment. And I know that there's a certain burden that I will place on myself for it. But at the same time, I, I try to rise up to that responsibility Um, So it ranges from like what I eat, what I like to do, music I enjoy listening to, just building that relationship. And this happens way before the new year, you know, like I'm Asian before February and after also. So (laughs) every year I try to have that conversation. And also because my own interests and things I do change, even though my cultural identity remains the same. Um, And then Black Lives Matter and, and Black History Month both are an inherent part of everything we do at school. And I, I think it's so important for people to recognize that when I say Black, Brown, and Latinx, it's simply who they are and not to have coded perceptions when I bring up words that describe the students because it's, it's just their identity. I mean, not just one to be valued, I should say. Um, and so for me, Black History Month work also occurs year-round and students will actively read and engage and learning about Black history and herstory. And every class actually is named after a role model. Um, most are people of color. So they will teach each other about the different role models of history throughout the year. So it's not just a once a year situation.
0: Yeah, I think that's important to know because there are people who think, oh, it's February. I guess it's finally time to acknowledge these people. Um, and then but then if we go towards that route, then for our people who identify as black or as someone who does men or does celebrate Lunar New Year, it's like, oh, I guess I'm only amplified during this month. And then when, when March comes, oh, well, I have to wait a whole nother year to see myself represented. So I guess, just from your perspective, what are concerns about how people celebrate Lunar New Year around this time? And I I also just said people. I wasn't very specific. I just said, well, anyone, because I think like it doesn't matter if you identify as like a person of color or white person, like we all will, you know, all carry some mistakes in that. So, yeah, I'm just curious, what are your concerns in that?
1: Yeah, well, I'm constantly afraid of the misconceptions people have and are going to continue to perpetuate. So, first, Lunar New Year is not a monolithic holiday, just like the Asian American identity isn't. We already talked about that, uh, talked about that a little bit before. Um, and Lunar New Year celebrations just vary greatly from country to country, and also within the U.S. Like a celebration in Chinatown in New York City is different from a celebration in Chinatown in San Francisco. Um, And I just fear also the burden of learning and teaching about Lunar New Year to fall on the one Asian looking kid in class only to, yeah, only to create like racial burden on them. So I would personally recommend to learn about what specific Lunar New Year traditions and celebrations already occur in your specific community within where you teach. Um, And there might be similarities, but also hone in on those differences, those subtle differences that could occur, and and Lunar New Year has many different names. Um, yeah. Oh, and teaching one about Lunar New Year without referencing specific cultures is not sufficient.
0: Yeah. Or when people say, "Oh, guess what? We're gonna we're going to acknowledge Chinese New Year," which then like eliminates all the other um, cultures that do celebrate it. Or even assuming, "Oh, Darlene, do you celebrate Lunar New Year?" And I go, "Well, in Filipino culture, not really." Like there's some um, Chinese influence where some Filipinos do celebrate, but growing up, I didn't even know it existed.
1: Yeah, it's not celebrated really in all all Asian cultures. Uh, so this for me, I a couple things that I did, I've done so far in February to celebrate Lunar New Year. Um, one of my favorite music videos, and this is not new, this is from 2013, I think, uh, is a video by the Fung Bros who are a, mu- uh, a comedy duo on YouTube called Lunar New Year, and the students will sing the chorus, it's a Lunar New Year. But what I love about that video is it showcases a, a big diversity of Lunar New Year and includes phrases in different Asian languages. Um, I also share and teach the song Gong Xi, which is a song of wishing well wishes, best wishes for the new year but always make sure that I say that it's one song and it's one song on Mandarin, one of the Asian languages, one of the Chinese languages, not all Chinese speakers speak the same language. Um, and then something fun that I, I think that uh, is unique is last July on TikTok, and I'm not a big TikTok influencer or anything, but I think it was July when this a meme video of Hua uh, Piao Piao came out um, which is basically this person who is dressed like a monk is in the mountainsides, and there's like snow flowing in the background, kind of like my current background like, of life <laughs> nice. right now. Um, but it's to like an '80s Taiwanese hit, um, and it and what I find is so interesting is the song somewhat translates to English as the snowfall flutters, but it has become a representation of like it is what it is. And I just thought that was so interesting how the interpretation of song and language changes over time, plus across different languages. So that's something that I uh, would like to bring up more because even though that's not directly related to Lunar New Year, I think that can give so much more understanding sometimes than just a song talking about Lunar New Year traditions. Oh yeah, for sure. And I love that you mentioned
0: TikTok because I mean, with these kids, if you just say that, they'll go, oh my gosh, I'm immediately engaged. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's also important for these students to see that yeah, you can be amplified even through these platforms that they are aware of. So um, yeah, we'll put the links to all of those in the show notes for everyone who is interested. So yeah, I'm loving these examples. What are other musicians of color that you love to feature throughout the year and why those specific musicians?
1: Yeah, so specifically in music, a musician and a music teacher, uh, Mr. Harold Simmons, who released this video called Black Women in History. Aside from the fact that it's just a bop, it really highlights Black women in history and including uh, Kamala Harris, it's very recent. Kamala Harris is the first Black and Asian vice president and Dr. Kizzy, a Black doctor who helped create the COVID vaccine. And it was fascinating when the kids watched this, aside from grooving along to, uh, here, one of them say I didn't know there were so many black women who did so many things mm. and I say that not to pat myself on the shoulder like okay I'm great for me that I exposed it mm. but it's like why why is that the yeah. case and it's just important to continue to highlight that um other musicians of color and I've just lots I guess um Elena Moon Park has a whole album on uh Songs from Asia, folk songs with kids, and she has a couple of great videos out as well. Soul Silence Lab talks so deeply and critically about the history of hip hop, but in a very kid-friendly way. I love the musical duo uh, Two Set Violin on YouTube. They're hilarious, and they really actively try to dismantle what classical music is and what how it's perceived. So I love that. Black Violin, The String Queens, Keidren Bryant, Alan Z on Instagram, who speaks a lot to Black and Asian solidarity. Um, a lot, all the artists who work on the Carnegie Hall Music, Musical Explorers program. This year, my classroom role model is Alicia Keys. They're talking a lot about her influence, especially as a New Yorker. And then in my opinion, most importantly, the kids and each other, students from older grades, younger grades and their music and creation and vice versa. I love that. I love that you include your school
0: community so they see that that pursuing music isn't just like, oh, it's for those people. Even if, oh, they do look like me, but it's for those people. Like they, It's important for them to see that it is continuing.
1: Oh, I said that's something I also do actively is I have Freestyle Fridays so students can work on their beatbox skills and also have the opportunity to freestyle rap about really anything and everything, including like post-inauguration as well as mm. post-insurrection. And then also just as a way for students to express their thoughts, feelings, and mm-hmm. questions, musically. There's so much that I think goes, uh, comes out of our minds when we're in that flow state and we're just speaking almost like a stream of consciousness that doesn't always happen in very written down, like let's perform this written piece of music way. Yeah, and that's really, yeah, it's breaking
0: that expectation that no, like, music um, that is only worthy to be formed has to be from a piece of paper that um, has to be memorized completely or whatever like that. Like, I think that's important for not just you know, teachers, but even for anyone who's not a teacher thinking like, okay, like, what are some what are your perceptions of perform music? Does it have to be memorized? Like, why can't it be, you know, spontaneous like that? So I love that you mentioned that going back to all these different musicians that um, they feature throughout the year. I think that's important that um, that you've mentioned all these awesome individuals, and that we can feature them even in all these different units. So I think some teachers might think, oh, I have to like, have a unit just on people of color. like no like if you're talking about you know the instrument families in an orchestra don't just feature you know a German orchestra maybe if you're talking about hey the violin show an example of two set show an example of black violin when I was talking about the clarinet I showed my students um, a four-play clarinet and they were um there were some people of color there. So they see that whoa, it's not just one kind of clarinet, first of all, there are many kinds. And they were also doing covers of pop music. So I also wanted to show the students that hey, like these orchestra instruments aren't only for number one classroom music and <laughs> playing in the orchestra, like you can do other awesome things with them. So We got no excuse. We got. There are awesome musicians out there. We they're just out there, ready to be
1: discovered. (laughs) Yeah, I that that just reminds me. Also, like most recently, I had my orchestra. We were playing uh, "O Fortuna" from Carl Orff, but basically remixed it with "Hate Me Now" by Nas because Nas sampled a part of "O Fortuna," the beginning and the main melody, uh, in his music. And I think it's so important for kids to see like those connections, uh, both lyrically as as O Fortuna has a poem and and Nas has his lyrics. And also just like, what is the displacement of rhythm? What does that speak to? And there's just so much great cross-cultural possibility that can occur. Mm -hmm. And it helps students to be aware of, hey, wait,
0: where are the other songs and pieces where current musicians have borrowed from um, classical music. I remember hearing I think another podcast about like oh my gosh what if oh they would be rolling in their grave if they, <laughs> if they heard what we've done to their music and I'm thinking actually I think they'd be pretty impressed with how we're remixing it and having it come alive so I think yes yeah, teachers we should be open to showing these remixes and not kind of uplift classical music thing, oh no it can't be touched it has to be you have to listen to the, the purest, purest inter- yeah, and it's interpretation. Oh, and has to be like the very specific performer because they've studied 20 years on this. It's like, no, but like, let's look at all the different ways um, that can be played and how we can remix it. So that's, that's really awesome that you're doing that. When it comes to using material from other cultures, how can we as educators do better, and this is important, do better and knowing whose voice is being told. I have another follow-up question to that.
1: Yeah, well, I think first, it's important for us to know that we're act- we need to actively seek material and music from other cultures. Because we have a very Western curriculum nationwide. And so often, unless we're seeking those voices, they will just be left out or continue to be left out. Um, so my first thought is find out who the author slash songwriter, composer is and read up on them beyond their cultural or non-cultural sounding name. That's so important for us not to make those judgments um, and ask them also find out like who are the editors, contributors, authors, like where are these, like what is this being published under? Because there's editing that occurs that can also cause erasure of what the original piece might be. And I think it's important for us to connect with culture bearers who are either using them, but also definitely compensate them to form that relationship and then name like, that we're not just using them for the day or the month. Um, Within all of that, I think it's important for all of us to reflect on what does it mean to say that something is authentic? Like what makes something authentic? Does, Does me as an Asian person's Um, performing an Asian song make it authentic even if I've never read it before Um, or like is it authentic for me to sing something in English because I'm American like what is that that um, authenticity and what does that mean Um, and then also just know that pieces of music have varied interpretations so like even me and another Asian American specifically Chinese American as well we can have different interpretations because we can be lumped together in the same group, but we all have different life experiences and also just life experiences with the music that we create. It could be that same exact piece, but the way that we've been taught it, the way that we personally experience it is different. So yeah, I think a lot of it is just, is questioning um, and not being afraid to ask those questions, but definitely compensating people when questioning. (laughs)
0: Yes, compensation is huge and not thinking, oh, I'm just going to expect them to do all the research for me and give me all their resources. (laughs) Yes. Um, Follow up to this question is, what about for people who are thinking, oh, I don't pick music based on, you know, their culture, like I just look for good music. Um, so they basically just disregard in like looking at uh, the background of um, the people that they pick. So what about, what is your response to something like that? What is good music is my response, first of all. <laughs> also, why does their culture and their background
1: have to be separate from quote yeah, unquote good I think music? Yeah, we, yeah, this, I, it kind of makes me, it's so interesting because we're on, you know, the coloring, the melody. Podcast, but if we refuse to see the color and refuse to acknowledge culture then the only like then it becomes erasure there's no middle ground to it so it's you know it, it strikes a chord with me pun intended of like oh I I don't call people Asian because I don't see color or I don't say that they're black because it you know they could be green or purple and i'll still teach them and and they'll still matter which are things that i still hear to this day unfortunately i think that like seeing them and then affirming our students and each other in in our field is is so important because it is the like i someone sees me and the first thing that they see is that i'm asian and, and, um, yeah, like that's not something that could ever be taken away or different. And I think that it's so important to acknowledge that and just not be afraid of that. Like there's by blanking it, blanketing it, we're not solving any issue.
0: Yeah, that's important to know. Cause I think some people think, oh, like, I'm just afraid to get it wrong. Having fear doesn't give the excuse of like what you said, erasure of, you know, people's identities and people's identities are also a part of their music and I love what you say like what is good music and that really depends on the person who says it and their experiences and biases around th- that definition um so I think because I saw that um comment from I don't even know where like there are so many <laughs> so many places where I've seen it probably yes. in different variations too um is just also encourage those people to interrogate what does good music mean to you? Like, what are some concrete examples of good versus bad? And if someone else's, I guess, example of good music is different, then what do we do there, you know?
1: Yeah, I almost even want to challenge people not to think of any music as bad. Like, yeah. why does it have to be on the good-bad binary? Hmm. And instead, it's almost like the there's a a Sesame Street video of the power of yet and like just not being there yet, whatever that means in a process. And if we just viewed music making as that process and valued that more than the product of of whatever that good music is, it would, it would shift so much of what standards are or just how music is taught, I think too.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, as I'm starting to connect this with how we teach is that perception that people have of oh the whole binary of this is good versus bad that it's going to carry in our teaching whether we are aware of it or not and then it will students will pick it up and they'll think oh yeah like this music is bad because this teacher isn't featuring it or they act a certain way and then we continue to perpetuate that okay only this music is good and i think a perfect example of that is simply not bringing our students' experienced music outside of the classroom, I'm just not welcoming it. So that even if it's not the quote-unquote intention, (laughs) people think, oh, like my intentions were like, no, like even though that wasn't your intention to make students feel like their preferred music styles are not welcome, especially we don't take the time to acknowledge
1: it. Yeah, that also makes me think of um, just like when so often when, well-intentioned teachers will ask like, go home and ask your parents like, what's a, or family members, like what's a song that, you, that your, your culture celebrates, right? But there's a level of detachment, at least for m- many immigrant parents that I know that when they leave a place, the need to assimilate and survive overrides this culture that they had before they came to America. Right. So there's trauma that's involved in that as well. So I think that that's important to acknowledge and and just know about kids when you feel a loss or when kids feel a loss of connection to their own culture. I agree with that. I've had conversations with some colleagues
0: on how they would try to ask their students to do that same thing like hey ask your parents on you know traditional folk songs and some would just be embarrassed like they didn't want to talk about it. I remember doing an assignment where it was like oh yeah ask your parents or your brothers or your aunt you know what what their favorite song is and there was a small part of me that was hoping for them to mention something traditional but all of them were like Celine Dion like or like Coldplay <laughs> and I'm just like oh songs that I listened to growing up but like they were songs that my mom listened to like I rarely heard traditional Filipino folk songs growing up. If I did they were um, they were from home videos of my grandparents yeah. when they were um, dancing to folk songs. Uh, My grandparents on my dad's side were really big on um, folk dancing, and that's where I would hear it. Or my mom's side, where my my little or my grandpa would just be singing away, singing those songs. And when I think of these traditional Filipino folk songs, I don't immediately tie it to my parents, no offense to them, I just immediately tie it to my grandparents, because that's where I first heard it from. So yeah, it's really interesting to think that, especially, you know, know, for for our teacher friends who are thinking oh i'm just going to like talk to the parents it's like wait but like what you said there's a chance that they may not feel open to to share about that part and
1: it's it's important to consider that as well yeah and also just to affirm like there is nothing wrong with you know Celine Dion oh, yeah. or any like american artist as as what like is part of your your parents or our family members now Identity, right? Because that is part of the American experience. Upon upon, especially upon immigrating here. So I think it's it's complex. Like you you can't just look only for the quote unquote traditional from the motherland as the answer. Which is why I reference Fung Bros also because like they're Asian American and they they reference the roots, but the way that it's portrayed is like, oh yeah, I totally can relate to this as an Asian American because there's like American parts of this that are very hard to explain to my um, my relatives who are still in China. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I
0: am loving this conversation, Alice. Like I feel like you and I could go on for three hours <laughs> on all the yes. things. Um, But I mean, we'd love to have you back do part two. Um, is there anything else you'd like to specifically share with our listeners, like, um,
1: like a call to action or a favorite quote? Yeah, I do want to actually take the moment to acknowledge a lot of anti-Asian violence that's occurring in America right now. And so, so often, and, and Darlene, you posted about this, we are in such a rush to to teach and learn about Black history and Black lives and at the expense of other marginalized communities. So for me, I think it's really important to stand in solidarity and speak to and against Asian, speak against anti-Asian um, hate crimes that are happening because I. it immediately for me brings up my own worries with my family members. So I say that to say in the music classroom, as much as you're teaching into Black history and Lunar New Year and these identities, it's also important to loop in those current events without causing trauma, but just empowering students to talk about it. Um, and then from a very real standpoint, compensate the folks of color who you seek that time and energy and our resources from. So. In addition, donating to like nonprofits who are doing this equity work, holding your legislators accountable. It has to, this, this work, this anti-racist work and, and truly coloring the melody is outside of just inside the classroom. So use your voice to speak up against anti-Asian and anti-Black racism. Yeah, it's definitely, our work is Outside our classroom and
0: resisting that sense of urgency, like, I have to do it because everyone else is doing it. Um, without taking the time to reflect on what that would specifically look like and what our current position is when amplifying that, um, and not taking the time to do the inner work ourselves, and especially with what you've mentioned on all these um, these anti-Asian situations that have been happening, like it really hits home um, for especially our Asian community. Um, And I think another thing is, I know the teacher brain will immediately think this is, oh, but I don't have enough time to talk about these things or to mention it. So then I, I wanna ask this question. So when is the perfect time?
1: Yeah, there's no perfect time, but I think it's injustice if you don't address it in your classroom and have kids know about it be able to talk about it. And I always, you know, as decolonizing the music room will often say that it's, it's not about building safe spaces, it's about building brave spaces.
0: Well, thank you again, Alice, for taking the time to chat with me. Um, I'm hoping our listeners have been encouraged and challenged by our conversation. Um, Alice, where can we find you on all the socials?
1: You can find me at Music with Miss Alice, M I S S A L I C E, on Instagram. On YouTube, you can follow our school, PS 532 New Bridges. Like I said, we have a live stream, Bright Start, every day, every weekday that we're in school. Uh, and my website, musicwithmissalice.com. And then for more of my personal thoughts, alicetoy.com as well, T S U I. Thanks, Alice. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast, Coloring the Melody. If you liked what you just heard, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to connect, please feel free to email us at coloringthemelodypodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or visit us on Instagram at coloringthemelodypodcast. This is Darlene. And this is Nora. And we challenge you to think about how you can color your, your melody. melody.